0: Good morning on this very frosty Sunday. Thank you for joining us. And depending on what time you're watching this, uh, if you're watching this early, uh, you'll get a chance, if you want, to come on down and hear me preach it one more time because we're doing drive-in church this Sunday at 10.30 in the morning. We'll be broadcasting on Uh, 88.3 FM radio transmitter and one of the great things that we're able to do with this transmitter is it reaches far enough to go across the street to Bayside Personal Care Home and so we've let the residents there know that they can tune in on their radios and listen in uh, not only for this Sunday but we'll be able to do this for all of our church services going forward that they can tune in by radio on Sunday morning. So we're really excited about that. I'm excited to go outside and preach in the cold, uh, but I'm also excited that you've joined in and will hear uh, this morning the Word of God. We have also uh, have some excitement because at long last we're hearing that some of the restrictions are going to be lifting for next weekend. And so we've, we've seen the government's proposal, but it's not set in stone as of yet. So we're going to do a little bit of wait and see before we announce exactly what church is going to look like next Sunday. Uh, we know that the, the numbers are gonna be lifting, so at the very least, we're going to be doing a live stream service with a, with a full uh, band and everything up here uh, like normal, and so we're looking forward to that. And we're not sure how many people will be allowed in the building, so you're gonna have to stay tuned for some details on how that's all going to uh, unfold. There will be some sort of a hybrid approach. Uh, there will be the drive-in option, and of course, to tune in on the live stream at home, but we're excited that we're going to be able to begin having people come back in the building Uh, It's going to be a little bit slow, but uh, we're moving in the right direction. So we're really excited about that, and stay tuned. Check our website for details later on this week uh, once uh, those uh, restrictions are made official. Now, uh, I would invite you as well uh, to be aware of how you can give through tithes and offerings. You can continue to give through the mail. Uh, Make your checks payable to Clarny Mennonite Church and mail them to Box 969, Clarny, Manitoba, R0K1G0, Or you can also bring them in person uh, to the church, and there's an offering box located in the foyer. I would now invite you to bow with me, and let's unite our hearts in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us today. We thank you that you that you are here, and that where two or three are gathered in your name, you are present in the midst of them. And so we thank you, Lord, that... Uh, from this promise of your word that we know that you, you indwell the presence and the worship of your people as we come together. And so we thank you, Lord, that you have heard our prayers and, and that at long last we are able to begin anticipating regathering again in person. And so, Father, we, we thank you for this and we pray, Lord, we would never take for granted uh, the freedom to worship you and to come together as a family of faith Uh, We pray, Lord, for this morning, as we do it through drive-in service, that you will bless that as well. And we pray that your word will go forth. Uh, We we thank you that as well, that it will be a a ministry and a blessing to the residents at Bayside Personal Care Home. And so we pray, Lord, that for those who tune in there, that they would be blessed and encouraged by being able to participate and to hear your word. And so we ask a special blessing on them, Lord, that they would know they're not forgotten, uh, that in their loneliness would you be a source of comfort and a companion to them, and we pray as well, Lord, for the day where we will once again have more freedom to worship, them, or to worship with them, to visit them, and to be able to, to be a comfort to those, Lord, at the end stage of their lives. And so we pray for them, Lord, and pray for the staff of, of Bayside that you would continue to undertake for them. Father, we pray for our leaders in our land in, in these days as, as decisions continue to be made that affect all of us. Uh, we pray for wisdom for them, Lord, and we ask that you would guide them uh, that they would seek your your face and seek your counsel, and that you would help them to make good decisions on our behalf. We pray, Lord, uh, in this regard as well for our court, and we pray for our Chief Justice, Greg Joyle, as he will be making some decisions upon uh, some of the recent decisions being made by the government and, and how that affects our ability to worship and to gather. And so we pray for wisdom for him, Lord, as he deliberates upon this proceeding. Uh, Father, we pray for our leadership here in our church, for our church council as we we navigate these next uh, days and weeks ahead, Lord, as we look ahead to reopening. We pray, Father, give us wisdom and help us to, all of us, to do our part to make good decisions and that, Father, in these days help us to be considerate towards one another, to be compassionate and kind. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to build up your church, for you have promised that you will build your church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and so we thank you that this is your work, and that we simply get to be uh, privileged to be participants in what you are doing and so we ask for this Lord and Father, now we pray for anyone who's listening today who is uh, needs a touch from you in uh, perhaps in the realm of physical healing, Lord, where there is illness, where there is uh, perhaps uh, a disease or or even um, uh, bones that need to, to continue to heal, Father, uh, we ask that you would lay a healing hand upon them and meet their needs. Uh, we pray, Lord, as well for those who are struggling with mental health issues, those who are dealing with anxiety or depression or some combination of that, Father. We pray, uh, just help them in, in whatever their situation is to put their cares and bring their cares to you, to lift them up to you in prayer and just continue to strengthen them day by day and hour by hour. Let, let their hope uh, be fixed on you. And we pray that you would lift uh, this depression from them in in your time, Father. And Lord, we pray now for our spiritual health, for our relationship to you is the most important thing in this life. And so, Father, in these days, we know we've been tested, but we we thank you that in these tests, you have promised that you are doing a good work in us through them. And so we pray, Lord, strengthen our perseverance, um, strengthen our, our discipline, uh, we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our commitments, that we would not grow lukewarm or apathetic because we are not able to gather or do the things we normally do, but instead we would be growing and drawing closer to you, Father, as we, as we spend time uh, in prayer, as we seek you through scripture and hear from your word. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would um, make us steadfast in our faith and cause it to grow deeper um, because of the challenges we have been going through. And so we thank you that this is your will and that, Lord, in all of these things that your gospel would go forth with power. And so we ask your blessing on it this morning. Uh, we pray that you would bless gifts and the givers and uh, that each one, Lord, would be used to build your kingdom. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I would now invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to our scripture reading for this morning from Romans chapter 7 and verses 15 to 25 beginning in verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. So far the reading of God's word. Now, last week, we studied the first half of this chapter in Romans 7, 1 to 14. And there we looked at how to struggle with sin and lose. There we learned that the surefire losing formula is to fall into one of the two ditches, either into the first ditch of legalism or into the second ditch of license. And and either ditch on either side of the straight and narrow road with Jesus is a trap that believers fall into that cause them to lose in their struggle against sin. And we learned that it doesn't really matter which of the two ditches you fall into because they both leave us in the same place, stuck and not up on the road, walking in daily victory with Christ. And so this week, as we continue on in Romans 7 and verses 15 to 24, we're now going to learn about how to struggle with sin and win. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word reveals to us the condition of our hearts, how helpless we are apart from you, and that even more, it shows us the path to victory. And so, Father, this morning, I pray by your Holy Spirit, speak through me, your servant, speak through your word to our hearts, give us ears to hear, and feet and hands willing to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Sean Walker of The Guardian writes the following true account. On a chilly morning in December 1988, a computer analyst named Jack Barsky embarked on his usual morning commute to his office on Madison Avenue in Manhattan. Leaving his wife and baby daughter at home in Queens, he he entered the subway and caught sight of something startling, a daub of red paint on a metal beam. Barsky had looked at that metal beam every morning for years. It meant he had a life changing decision to make and fast. Barsky knew the drill. The red paint was a warning that he was in immediate danger, that he should hurry to collect cash and emergency documents from a prearranged drop site. From there, he would cross the border into Canada and contact the Soviet consulate in Toronto. Arrangements would be made for him to leave the country immediately. He would cease to be Jack Barsky. The American identity he had inhabited for a decade would evaporate, and he would return to his former life, that of Albrecht Dietrich, a chemist and a KGB agent. You see, the fact was that Albrecht Dietrich had successfully served as a Soviet spy in America from 1978 to 1988. He maintained his two separate identities so well and so completely that Albrecht Dietrich and Jack Barsky also had two separate families. For still waiting for Dietrich back in East Germany was his first wife and son. But meanwhile, in America, Jack Barsky married a second wife with whom he had a a daughter. The two wives knew nothing about each other or that their husband was a spy with dual identities. Years later, he reflected. I did a good job of separating the two. Barsky had nothing to do with Dietrich, and Dietrich wasn't responsible for Barsky. Now, can you imagine what it would be like to live such a double life with completely separate identities, even two completely separate families on different continents? Well, chances are you can't quite imagine living the life of a double agent spy but on another hand if you're a christian then in a spiritual sense you can actually imagine it very well by the ongoing struggle within you between the spirit and the flesh two identities at war with each other within the same body and this leads us into our first key point from our text in romans 7 15 to 25 and that is this Everyone struggles with sin. No one is immune. Everyone struggles with sin. Now, we all have a tendency to look up at, you know, spiritual people that we admire, and and we think things like, they they just have it all together. They must never struggle with sin. But the truth is, whether someone is a pastor like myself, a, a missionary, a Sunday school teacher, whether you've been following Christ for five weeks or five decades, no one is immune to the struggle with sin. And here in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul gives us his personal testimony of his ongoing struggle against his own sinful flesh. Let me read it to you again from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message. And I find this uh, paraphrase really helps bring to life what Paul is wrestling with and brings it into sharper focus. Listen to Paul's words. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more, for I know, that the, for I know the law but still can't keep it. And if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do bad things anyways. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Now, as we hear Paul's heart's cry of his struggle against the flesh, there's debate amongst scholars about whether Paul is describing himself pre-conversion to Christ or post conversion. Now, without getting into all of the specific arguments for and against, I'll just state that my position is that here Paul is describing his struggle with sin post conversion. He's he's struggling as a believer. And the reason I have that position is twofold. The context of this section of teaching is not on how to be justified. He had, been, he had been talking about that in the earlier chapters of Romans. Now the emphasis is on how to be sanctified as a believer. You've already been justified, but now he's focusing on how to be sanctified, which is to be removed from the practice of sin and transformed into the image of Christ. The second reason that I believe this is post-conversion is that we see Paul is describing himself here not in the past tense, but in the present tense. The grammar he uses. Case in point, look at verse 15, where if Paul had been speaking in the past tense, he should have said something like, I could not understand what I did. For what I wanted to do, I could not do, but what I hated to do. But instead, we read, What Paul writes in the present tense. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. So we see, again, he's talking present tense, not past tense. And from this, I'm convinced that Paul is not writing about his days before meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's describing his ongoing struggle with sin after meeting Jesus on the road To Damascus. He's talking about the struggle of his personal sanctification, to be separated from the practice of sin. And this fits consistently with Paul's teaching in the previous chapters, that through faith in Christ, he was fully justified, but not yet fully sanctified. So, positionally in Christ, we saw in Romans 6, that positionally he was dead to sin, period. But practically, Paul was still not immune to sin's temptations, and so he had to struggle against the flesh, just like everyone else, you and I included. And so if the great Apostle Paul himself still struggled with the sinful desires of the old flesh, then we shouldn't be at all surprised when we do as well. Now, I've had people say to me, Man, I don't even know if I'm a Christian because I seem to struggle with sin all the time. Well, if that's you, maybe this will be an encouragement. Struggling with sin is not the sign of God's absence. It is the sign of God's presence. Let me say that again. Struggling with sin is not the sign of God's absence. It is the sign of God's presence. How can I say that? Well, you see, those who don't yet know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, those who don't know him, you see, they don't struggle with sin the same way as believers do. Why? Well, it's primarily because they don't have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit constantly convicting them of their sin. Yes, they still have a conscience. God has given everyone a conscience. But the thing about the conscience is, it is so easily numbed by sin, so easily seared and ignored, that the longer someone is in sin, it comes to the point where the conscience hardly works at all anymore. Whereas for a believer who continues to live in sin, this actually grieves the Holy Spirit who is living within you. And the more you try to silence the Holy Spirit's voice convicting you of your sin, the more miserable you'll become. It's why it's been said that the most miserable person in the world is a Christian living in sin. The most miserable person in the world is a Christian living in sin. It's like the little boy who disobeyed his mom, and she puts him into a timeout. And as he sits down in a chair facing the wall in the corner, he looks over his shoulder at his mom and he says, Do you know my problem? I'm not good at being bad. I'm just bad at being good. Well, like that boy and the Apostle Paul, our desire to obey is often greater than our ability to obey. We're not good at being bad. We're just bad at being good. And I know that early on in my Christian journey, I, I often used to think that if I could just get to this certain level of spirituality, a certain level of maturity, if I could just hit a certain level, plateau then once I had arrived there I would never have to struggle with sin ever again and I had this hope that I could somehow reach this place and for instance I can remember almost every single time every summer that I would leave Turtle Mountain Bible Camp I would be on this spiritual high I would be pumped up for Jesus and I would be so sure that I would go home and just never sin again until invariably I did And then I would always just figure, well, I I simply didn't put in enough effort this time around. And so I would recommit myself to trying harder the next time. And you can see how in this mindset I was falling into the legalism trap that I just had to try harder and do better. But then I would just go back and go through the whole cycle all over again. And as I kept on repeating it year after year, you know, a camp high and then a crash. And, and other things in between where I would say, this time it's different. This time it's going to stick. I've reached the next level. I'll never struggle with sin again. And then it would always come back around. And, and finally, at some point, I don't know how old I was, but I just had this, this feeling that something was wrong with me. That I just couldn't get to this level where I would never struggle with sin again. Well, C.S. Lewis put it this way. No man knows how bad he is until he has tried with all of his might to be good. You see, the fact is that we all struggle with sin. No one is immune. And the harder you try to be good, you will realize just how hard it really is. In fact, to be perfectly good on our own effort is utterly impossible. And that is exactly. What Paul is stating in this passage. If the great apostle Paul struggled with sin, then how could we be any different? No one is immune. Now on to the second key point from this passage. We need to realize that on our own, we are powerless to struggle against sin and win. On our own, we are powerless to struggle against sin and win. You see, in order to begin breaking the sin cycle, which I just described, we have to humbly come to the same realization that Paul did in verse 18. He writes, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I know that nothing good lives in me, Paul writes. Nothing. He came to the place of realizing that for all of his righteous efforts, for all of his grit and determination, which Paul had more than probably anyone else who's ever lived, he still fell short. He knew he had a desire to do what is good, but he did not have what it took to carry it out. Tommy Lasorda, the beloved former baseball manager of the L.A. Dodgers he once described his battle with his inner flesh in a humorous sort of a way. This is what he said. I took a pack of cigarettes out of my pocket. I stared at it and said, who's stronger, you or me? The answer was me. I stopped smoking. Then I, I took my vodka martini and I said to it, who's stronger, you or me? Again, the answer was me and I quit drinking. Then I decided to go on a diet. I looked at a big plate of linguine with clam sauce and said, who's stronger, you or me? And then a little clam looked up at me and answered, I am. And Lasorda then concluded, so I could beat smoking and I could beat drinking, but I just cannot beat linguine with clam sauce. Now, this humorous little story shows that just like Lasorda, no matter how strong you think you are, no matter how many areas you say, yeah, I I was strong enough to beat that area, every single last one of us has an area of weakness. Every one of us has an area of temptation to sin where we simply are not strong enough to win on our own, no matter how hard we try. Like Lasorda, there's going to be that one area. It might be something as simple as, as your diet, where, where the, that desire for the linguine and clam sauce was too much for him, and he couldn't win. He didn't have the strength. Well, it's the same for us in our certain area of weakness. The specific sins will vary wildly between different people. Paul admitted back in verses 7 and 8 that his personal weakness was coveting. In Galatians five nineteen to 21, he lists some of the other obvious sins. Sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, bickering, envy, and drunkenness. Elsewhere, he adds things like gossip, slander, pride, boasting, and even being disobedient to one's parents. Take a close close look at this list, and you'll likely find your specific weakness under one of these categories of sinful behaviors, attitudes, and thoughts. So if right now the Holy Spirit is highlighting that specific sin in your life, and like Tommy Lasorda, you're asking it, who's stronger, you or me? Well, you don't need a little talking clam to tell you that the sin is stronger than you. Because God's word has already told you that. You are not sufficient to defeat your temptation by your own strength. You just aren't. You have to come to the place of realizing you are helpless in and of yourself against it. Verses 18 to 19 says, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this... I keep on doing. So therefore, like Paul, each of us needs to come to that place of realization. That gut check level looking in the mirror and realize that on our own, no matter how much we want it, no matter how much we desire to do what's right, no matter how well intentioned we are and say this time's going to be different. This time I'm not going to go back there. This time I'm going to have victory forever. Realize, no matter what, On your own, you are powerless to struggle against sin and win. Period. And this leads us in to our third key point from this passage where the Apostle Paul is leading us. We need to stop trying and start trusting. We need to stop trying and start trusting. Now finally, in verse 24, the Apostle Paul, after thoroughly explaining his struggle with sin and just how powerless he was to win against it, he finally cries out in complete desperation, What a wretched man that I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Well, Paul's question rings through the ages and has been echoed by every sincere follower of Christ at some point in their Christian journey. You've probably lifted up some form of this prayer at some point in your walk with the Lord. What's wrong with me? Wretched man that I am. Who can rescue me? Who can deliver me from falling into this ditch again and again? Who can do it? We all come to a point where we're so fed up, and we're so disgusted with our sin, that we just want more than anything to be done with it forever. But we realize that we are powerless to do it. And that's exactly the place that Paul was describing when he cried out, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Now, in studying this passage, I learned something new about a specific practice that Paul was likely referring to with this phrase, body of death. The Romans, of course, were notorious for their cruel forms of execution, and, of course, the most famous being that of crucifixion. However, there was still one other punish, punishment which was reserved for only the worst of murderers who are sentenced to carry around dead weight. Dead weight. Now, this phrase, carrying dead weight, has been passed down through the centuries. And for us, it's come to mean uh, you know, something which has no benefit and actually slows us down or causes us harm. Dead weight. Well, this phrase stemmed from the Roman punishment of strapping a dead body onto the back of a murderer. And sometimes the dead body was even the body of the one who had been murdered by the murderer. And so, the murderer was then forced to live out their last few weeks of life literally carrying the dead, decaying corpse around strapped to their bare backs, skin to skin. And as the corpse would slowly decay, it would leak poisons into the criminal, gradually making them sicker and sicker until they finally died a very slow, painful, and stench-filled death. And so this very, very disturbing practice is likely the analogy that Paul is referring to when he cried out, O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death. Now remember, neither legalism nor license can rescue you. The answer is not found in trying harder nor in just giving up and sinning away. The one and only solution The only solution is to have someone else, someone greater, who can rescue you. Watchman Nee tells the story of his stay in China with 20 other Christians. The bathing accommodations were inadequate in the home where they were lodging, so they went for a daily dip in the river. On one occasion, one of the men got a cramp in his leg and began to sink fast under the water. Mr. Knee motioned to one of the other men who he knew was an excellent swimmer about the drowning man and to go and rescue him. But to his astonishment, the, the man who was an excellent swimmer did not move a muscle. He just stood there and intently watched the drowning man's struggle. Well, now Mr. Knee was agitated, but the swimmer was calm and collected. Meanwhile, out in the water, the voice of the drowning man grew grew fainter and fainter, and each time he came up out of the water more and more desperate. Help me, help me. And Mr. Knee in this moment hated the swimmer who was just standing there and watching from the shore when he could have immediately jumped into the river and rescued this drowning man. But as the drowning man now went under the water for what looked like surely the last time, suddenly the swimmer was there in a moment, and both were soon safely on shore. After the rescue, Mr. Knee went and chewed out the swimmer, accusing him of loving his life too much and being selfish. The response of the swimmer, however, revealed he knew exactly what he was doing. He told Watchman Knee that if he had gone in too soon, the drowning man would have put a death grip on him, and they would have both drowned in the river. He told Mr. Knee that a drowning man cannot be saved until he is utterly exhausted and ceases to make even the slightest effort to save himself. Well, in much the same way, this is also how the Lord works out our sanctification. For it's only as we come to the end of our strength, and we stop trying to rescue ourselves, and in desperation call upon the Lord Jesus, trusting that he and he alone can grant us the victory over sin, that he will come and rescue us. So long as we're still saying, I got this, I got this, I'm strong enough, I can fight this, so long as we do that, we're not yet ready in complete and utter desperation to say, Jesus, save me, help me, I can't do this without you. But we see here that this is exactly the conclusion that the Apostle Paul has reached for himself in verses 24 and 25. What a wretched man that I am. Who can rescue me from this body of death? He already knew that the answer was not himself. He was not sufficient to the task. He could not rescue himself. But here's the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, just as we were powerless to rescue ourselves from the penalty of sin, so too we are powerless to rescue ourselves from the practice of sin it is christ alone who can do it it is christ alone who can work out both in our lives as we put our trust in him alone to achieve it but make no mistake victory over the practice of sin will not happen in just one decision today that will then last for the rest of your life from this moment and on it's not how it works Instead, victory will only be achieved as you live and walk in a daily relationship with Jesus, day by day and hour by hour and minute by minute in complete dependence on him. It is by humbly realizing how truly weak we are apart from him and that apart from his strength at work within us, we will lose every single time. You see, the moment we we think, oh, I've had a couple of victories in a row, Jesus, I don't need you anymore, I got this, that is when guaranteed you are going to fall once more. It is day by day, hour by hour, and minute by minute, realizing you cannot go a moment without Jesus. You are completely dependent upon him for victory. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 to 10, Paul shared another personal testimony of a struggle he had had with a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what the thorn was, but he writes that after asking three times for it to be removed, the Lord had replied to him like this. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest upon me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So my friend, today, take heart. That in your weakness is Christ's strength. That in your struggle against sin, Christ's power is made perfect. So humble yourself today in complete dependence on his strength every single day. And at each and every moment of temptation, call upon Jesus. Call upon him in that moment of testing. For his promise is that his grace is sufficient and his power is immediately available to see you through to victory. There's a great praise song that we sing that says it so well. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. Let's pray. This is our prayer. God, we need you. Jesus, we need you. We simply are not strong enough to win this victory. It has to be you. It has to be you to save us, and it has to be you day by day, hour by hour and minute by minute, sanctifying us, separating us from the practice of sin, giving us victory over each temptation as they come. Not that we will ever reach a plateau where we can say, now, I never struggle again, but instead to say, I've reached a place where I know that in each struggle, Christ and his strength will be sufficient, that his grace is there to carry me through, and that I will trust you for this test and this trial and this moment and that is how, day by day, we can walk in victory in you. Thank you that you have made something that is, seems so impossible, so simple, that like little children, we must simply trust you in complete dependence, recognizing that there is nothing in us. There is no strength, there is no good thing in us that is capable to do this. Only you and your presence is able to do this. And so we throw ourselves upon you. Be our strength in our weakness be our victory and be our song lord for we trust in you and you alone in your name we pray amen I now invite you to receive the benediction now may god himself the god of peace sanctify you through and through May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. May God richly bless you in the week ahead, and remember that the Lord Jesus is our victory as we walk with him by faith, day by day, and hour by hour. Call upon him, depend upon him, and he will give you victory. I pray as well that in the, in the weeks ahead that I will soon be able to see many of you face to face. I look forward to that day, and we pray that the Lord will continue to work in our province and our land, and thank you so much for your prayers on, on my behalf as we have looked forward to these days ahead, and so I look forward to seeing you all. God bless you.